This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. What would you most like to know about how the brain works? Neuroscientist David Linden, a professor at Johns Hopkins, has been asking lean, leading brain researchers what they would most like people to know about the brain for years, sometimes after applying them with alcohol or other substances. The answer to that question are contained in the anthology Think Tank, 40 Neuroscientists Explore the Biological Roots of the Human Experience. David joins me today to give us a look inside the brain and help us understand some of its secrets. David, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So at the top, I mentioned that you like to ask brain researchers uh, what they would most like to explain. What would you uh, most like to explain about the human brain? Well, uh, I think if there is one overarching general thing I would like to explain is that uh, the brain is not built to give you the lowdown about the external world. It's, it's not there to give you the most accurate representation of what's around it. It's been sculpted by evolution to give you what it uh, believes based on, on uh, thousands of million years of prior experience is the information you need. So we're staring through a, a a keyhole, if you will, of possible sensory information. And then that sensory information is, is spun, if you will, by the brain in certain ways, so that we overemphasize some things and ignore others, and we blend it with context and expectation and emotion. So that by the time you experience it, um, it's a big, complicated stew. And you often hear um, parts of the brain referred to as, say, the, the lower animal part of your brain. Is this an accurate sort of description as to how the brain is kind of constructed or how it's evolved over, over many, many, many years? Well, yes and no, uh, in the sense that uh, there are parts of the brain which are literally the deepest, the closest to the spinal cord that control things like the regulation of breathing, for example, and the heart rate, and then a little higher, things like hunger and sex drive. And these areas are more similar bet uh, between us and, say, a lizard or a mouse. And through evolution, uh, uh, you see uh, more and more of the so-called higher structures like the, the cortex, the rind that covers the outside of the brain, becoming expanded and expanded. But I think the thing that's important to say is that those parts of the, of the brain at the bottom that we share with lizards, for example, they're not entirely static. They talk to the rest of the brain. So they have to change as the rest of the brain changes as well. And... There's this uh, this sort of myth um, that that the uh, that humans only use ten percent of their brain is is the commonly cited percentage. Where where does that idea come from that we only are using part a small fraction of our of our brain? 
Well, that's a really interesting thing. And a number of people have tried to chase this down. And lots of people actually believe that this myth comes from the famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, (laughs) that was written uh, around uh, roughly 1900, uh, I believe. But I think the important thing to realize is that when people say we only use 10% of their brain, it's not really that they're making a statement about neurophysiology. They're not saying, oh, in the course of a day, only one in 10 neurons will ever be active in your brain and the rest are silent. Rather, they're saying, can't we be better than we are? Isn't there a capacity to improve? I think that's what what people mean. I mean, in the course of the day, there isn't a single neuron in your brain that won't be electrically active. And and to take the counterexample, if the neurons in your brain were much more active than they were, well, that would create uh, an epileptic state. Hmm. That would not be a good thing. So uh, there are many complications in that 10% of your brain phrase that everyone seems to know. So to to clarify, we are using our whole brain, just uh, not necessarily all at once. And right, not necessarily not all at once, and and we wouldn't want to be using it all at once. If every if every neuron in your brain was electrically active at the same time, that would not be uh, a good thing either medically, nor would it be a good thing for your brain to to uh, to think and feel and make sense of the world. And and what about these neurons? Are these um... Are you born with a with a set of neurons that that lasts? Do they come and go? How do they how do they work? Uh, well, that's a great question and and one where there's been a certain amount of uh, uh, controversy. The one thing we do know is that uh, in early development in the womb and in early childhood, about twice as many neurons are born as ultimately reside in your brain. So there's a little bit of sort of pseudo-Darwinian evolution going on in your brain, use it or lose it. There are more neurons produced that we can use, and about half of them don't make connections that allow them to, uh, uh, to thrive, and they die off. And that sculpting of, uh, and pruning of excess neurons and connections by experience is crucial to, to how we fine-tune our brains as a result of experience. That, that underlies critical periods, like the ability to uh, speak a language with a perfect accent, which, as you know, is something that goes away uh, around age 10 or 12 uh, in life. The other thing that we know is that, for the most part, um, once this period of developmental pruning is over, the number of neurons you have is the number of neurons you'll have for the rest of your life, that you don't gain more. Now, there are a couple of little spots in the brain uh, where there, is, uh, there has been evidence that uh, there are new neurons born throughout uh, life. And one of these is uh, in a region called the hippocampus that has been uh, implicated in memory for facts and events. And there's been some arguments uh, about this. It really does seem like new neurons are born there in rats and mice. Whether they are in humans is uh, a matter of some argument, and I would say the uh, the book is not closed on that question. <laughs> and is the idea th- th- behind this that because 
you know, that, that has some part to play in memories that are, are new memories potentially building new neurons or, or is there something else going on? Well, so I think the thing we have to distinguish between is making entirely new neurons, that is to say new cells being born, cells dividing and changing from one to two to four to eight, etc., and new connections between existing neurons. Mm -hmm. And while there is little or no birth of new neurons in the adult brain, there is continuous changing and forming of the connections between neurons, what are called synapses. So we believe that your experiences in life are encoded into memory, at least in large part, by changing the strength of synaptic connections between neurons in your brain. And you sort of alluded to this idea that your brain changes as you age. Uh, first of all, you may, you're not as as adept at acquiring a language as you are when you're young, for example. Um, I think there's a lot of focus on sort of the, the, the negative parts of the way, uh, the way your brain changes as you get older. Are there, are there ways in which as you get older, as your brain ages, that things work better or differently in a, in a positive way? Well, I think it's not so much at, uh, on a physiological basis that things are improved. But uh, certainly when we look at the way people solve problems as they get older, they have more of a knowledge base to rely upon. And so even if their brain's processing speed is a little slower, they have, they have uh, uh, more life experience to, to, to draw upon to make good decisions. And uh, the... Uh, the other thing we know is that uh, attentional focus and uh, and impulsiveness can change over life. So, so people tend to be less impulsive uh, as they get older, and so that can improve uh, cognitive performance, even if other aspects of brain function are uh, decreased a bit with normal aging. And... Another thing that you hear people talk about is that as they get older, time uh, seems to go faster. When you're a kid, it's, you know, the summer lasts forever. And when you're an adult, a whole year can pass and you're, you're suddenly <laughs> left to wonder where it went. Is there, is there a, a physiological reason why uh, time seems to go faster when you're older? Well, uh, that's a really good question. And... Really, there's not a definitive answer to that. So one way that people have hypothesized about this and says, well, when you're young, um, a greater fraction of what you experience is novel. And novelty takes longer to process and you have to attend to it more. And so therefore, subjectively, uh, time seems to expand, whereas when you're older, more of the experiences that you're having are things that are similar to what have occurred to you in the past. And as a consequence, uh, your estimation of time changes. What, what we do know is that our, there are systematic ways in which people at all ages fail to estimate time intervals. And 
there are a couple of possibilities there. One possibility is, well, you know, you're building a clock not with electronic components like transistors. You're building it with squishy, wet biological things. And so the best you can do is a clock that's not very accurate. <laughs> but what you actually, if that were true, you would imagine that the errors, you would, you would have errors estimating things shorter and estimating things longer in relatively equal proportions. Uh, and that's not the case. Uh, there are actually systematic ways that we mismeasure time. And there's a terrific essay in the book by Vijay Mohan and Marshall Hussein Schuler uh, about this. And what they show is that your misapprehension of time actually makes sense because your misapprehension of time uh, is modified by the opportunity costs that you have for action. That is to say, if you're waiting in line and you are trying to decide whether it's worthwhile to wait to this line to or, or switch to another one, your, your perception of that value and of the time as well is altered depending upon what you are, what you are missing out on by waiting in that line, whether it's something good or bad or indifferent. Hmm. So maybe those, you know, you see when you're driving, there's the people that get stuck in traffic and are constantly changing lanes and the people who stay put in one lane. And when you switch lanes, the lane seems to stop. Is that, I mean, it's almost kind of like a, it's a brain thing almost that, that makes you want to switch lanes, for example, or switch lines as you're perceiving these, these opportunity costs. Well, well, right. There, there are interesting perceptual things that work there, but there are also, um, issues of personality there as well. So, in other words, the people who are more likely to want to constantly change lanes are going to be also more impatient, more novelty-seeking, more risk-taking on average in all aspects of their life. And uh, we know that uh, this trait uh, uh, goes together with lots of things, including propensity for addiction, and that is, is at least partially heritable and probably has to do in part with variations in the brain's uh, uh, reward and pleasure circuitry. Yeah, and, and speaking of personality, how is personality related to uh, brain physiology or, or any of the other areas of neuroscience? Well, that's, that's a great question, and it's an area where we don't know a lot about the particulars. In other words, we can say some very general things. For example, there have been a lot of studies that have given people all around the world uh, personality tests, and there are dimensions to personality like like. Uh, openness and and conservatism. That, that there's an abbreviation called OCEAN, O-C-E-A-N, which is an acronym for the different dimensions of personality uh, that are measured. And on average, what you find is that about oh, 60 percent of the variation in these personality measures can be uh, uh, can be attributed. To, uh, to heredity. 
uh, and can uh, and this is the, the way we know this is by looking at people and their parents, and also by looking at both identical and fraternal twins that have been raised either together or or separately. And by doing that, you can mathematically estimate the contribution of heredity. Now, to get into the specifics and say, well, okay, it's but what are the specific genes involved and how is it that they give rise to personality? There we have very, very few examples, but I can tell you about one that is fairly well known. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain that is involved in the processing of reward, and there are receptors for the neurotransmitter dopamine, and one of those receptors is called the D2 receptor. And Certain variants of that receptor are associated with um, the personality traits of novelty-seeking, uh, risk-taking, and uh, addiction. So there is a case where we can actually go uh, from the gene to the personality trait. But unfortunately, there aren't very many examples of that. You mentioned that as you often ask the question uh, to brain researchers, um, what what they would most like to explain about the brain, you'll you ply them with alcohol and 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 sometimes pot. Um, what happens in your brain when you say smoke pot or drink alcohol? Um, what why does your perception of the world change when you when you use these substances? It's a really good question, and uh, it's a complicated question. Alcohol, in particular, is uh, a drug that we use at very high concentrations uh, and which has many, many nonspecific uh, effects in the brain. One of the effects that it has is that through a series of signaling steps, it activates uh, the brain's pleasure and reward uh, circuitry using dopamine. And so in that way, it shares this property with nicotine and heroin and uh, amphetamine and cannabis and quite a number of other pleasure-inducing uh, substances. But it also has many other effects uh, on all kinds of, uh, of areas. And uh, so it alters perception, it alters focus. Um, Alcohol tends to have very different effects depending on dose. So, so generally speaking, uh, it can be uh, uh, a, uh, a sort of a social stimulant at low doses, but uh, a depressant at high doses. Uh, cannabis is, uh, is a more specific drug. Its uh, active ingredient activates a particular uh, receptor in the brain that's very well known. But this receptor is distributed rather broadly uh, through brain regions, and this accounts for its uh, rather divergent effects on uh, perception uh, and mood and uh, focus. And what um, another common topic I think that you hear a lot about um especially with the advent of some of these these training games, is this idea of neuroplasticity. What what is neuroplasticity, first of all? And are these are these training games based on any science? Is can you actually train your brain as you get older? 
um, to to be more receptive or to remember better or or accomplish any of those tasks? Well, yeah, brain training works really well, but but the bad news is it's hard and it's taking a long time, and it's called school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, so uh, so let me back up. Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is a very general term that means the ability of the brain to be changed by experience and to to form itself uh, over time as a result of experience. And experience can be uh, anything from, uh, from uh, trauma, uh, emotional trauma, uh, learning, or uh, recovery from injury. So neuroplasticity is, is meant to encompass the processes by which the brain tries to rewire itself to recover function after injury. It also uh, refers to those processes in normal learning and memory by which uh, uh, the environment uh, instills memories in our neural circuitry. And uh, it also refers to things at the subconscious level. So, for example, uh, if I had something bad happen to me when I walked into a blue-painted room, in the future when I walk into blue-painted rooms, my heart rate may go up, and I may not even notice it. But that is a form of subconscious learning that was written by plasticity into my brain nonetheless. Now, to get to brain training, um, there have been an awful lot of commercial claims made that have not held up uh, very well. Uh, there is specific training that seems to be useful for people who have language processing deficits. There is specific training that seems to have uh, some benefit for people who are recovering from stroke. The general idea that uh, you can play a, uh, a learning game on your computer and then have a lasting effect on your brain that is generalized beyond that game is not really true. Generally, you get better at the specific thing you're doing, and it doesn't generalize very well uh, to your cognitive world more broadly. I think the thing that people who are looking to improve their cognitive function or to maintain it in aging should realize is that the single best thing you can do uh, to keep your brain and cognitive function healthy is physical exercise. And the second most important thing you can do is to have a heart-healthy diet. And the third most important thing you can do is to have a rich and varied uh, mental life that doesn't require buying anyone's software. <laughs> and it'll save, you, it'll save you some money possibly too. That's right, that you can use for that gym membership. <laughs> So I'm going to turn the your sort of premise question around a little bit on you and ask you um, what question that has not been answered yet would you most like to see answered about the human brain? To me, one of the most interesting questions is how is individuality and consciousness maintained in situations where we know that the physical structure of the brain is changed enormously. And 
there are a couple of things that we can think of in this way. One of them is um, the mammalian ovarian cycle. So as women move through their cycle, uh, about one-third of the connections between neurons, one-third of the synapses, are lost in one part of the cycle, and then they're regained again every month in a human or every five days hmm. in a mouse. Why does this happen? It seems astonishingly difficult and energetically expensive. And if we believe that the strength of synaptic connections is where memory and individuality reside, how do these things get maintained in females? And we know in female humans that on average they're a little better in memory tests than males. So clearly it's any kind of a problem. But how, when all that information is gone away, how do the memories survive? Is it cryptically encoded in a way that we can't see? Is it regenerated actively like a hologram? Is it just distributed so widely that it can be, uh, it can survive insult? Uh, a similar thing happens in animals that hibernate. Their brains simplify during hibernation and they wake up in the spring and it's not like they have different personalities or they forgot where they cached their food. Uh, in the fall, they're, they're, they're still the same person, the same animal with the same memories. Uh, a similar thing happens in uh, people who undergo uh, chilling during heart-stopping surgery to, report, to repair uh, something like an aortic arch deficit or an aneurysm. So I would say one of the questions I would really like to know and that we're working on uh, in my laboratory is how is individuality and consciousness maintained in the face of these uh, enormous changes to brain circuitry? All right. Well, the book is Think Tank, 40 Neuroscientists Explore the Biological Roots of the Human Experience. David, thank you for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And if you learn something new, please subscribe and leave us a rating. Your brain will thank you, and so will we.